Hello, everyone, and welcome to Building the Machine, the brand new podcast series from Red Leg Nation Radio. Over these 12 episodes, we're going to bring you the story of the Big Red Machine, Cincinnati's baseball dynasty that changed the game forever. Day by day, year by year, you'll see how the machine was constructed, all the highs and lows, and the legacy that remains. Each week, we're going to be bringing you a new episode, focusing on a single year from 1969 to 1979. If you didn't get to experience the Big Red Machine as they were dominating baseball, you're going to enjoy the chance to experience the story as if you were there and learn more about the names and events that were so important in shaping the narrative around the Cincinnati Reds. We're also going to include thoughts on things that were different about baseball in that era, from salary negotiations to the way the game was played to the things that happened that made this team become precisely what it did become. Now, if you were fortunate enough to watch the machine live, this is going to be a fun blast from the past. This is episode three, The Reds Learn a Lesson. I'm Chad Dotson, and joining me now to discuss 1971 and a transitional year for the Cincinnati Reds and the Big Red Machine is Bill Lack. How are you today, Bill? I'm great. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about the 71 Reds, even though the season didn't go how, how we expected it to go or as we'd hoped. But as our title says, uh, the Reds learned a big lesson that, that year. Yes, and we're going to get into that lesson and uh, talk a little bit about uh, what uh, the machine was going through this particular season. You know, coming off, a, if you listen to the last episode, if you haven't, go listen to it now. The Reds lost in the World Series, their first World Series in nine years, and uh, a really young team almost makes it to the to the summit, but comes up just short. As the calendar turns to 1971, lots of things going on uh, in television. All in the Family debuted. On CBS, I know you're a big Archie Bunker guy, Bill. It was a one. It was a great show. You know what else uh, was uh, debuted that year? The Soul Train. The Soul Train, outstanding, and going off the air to show kind of the uh, you know what's coming and what's going. The Ed Sullivan Show aired their final broadcast. Uh, movies, you know, I always like talking about movies. Best Picture winner was going to be The French Connection, outstanding Gene Hackman movie, but also some other great movies that I uh, like from that year: Clockwork Orange. The Last Picture Show, one of the most underrated movies ever. Dirty Harry, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Robert Altman film. And, of course, James Bond diamonds are forever. Not not one of the better Bond films. It, it, it's funny, though, because I, I remember seeing it at the time, and then shortly after that, or shortly before it, I can't remember which, Sean Connery did another movie called The Anderson Tapes. And I thought, you know, well, gosh, it's Sean Connery. It's going to be like a James Bondish type movie. I was very disappointed. <laughs> well, most Sean Connery movies were great. His Bond uh, is the best Bond ever, but yeah, that's not exactly top shelf uh, movie entertainment. Two other movies that year. My favorite musical of all time, Fiddler on the Roof. Ah, oh, that's right. 1971. And Richard Roundtree, Shaft. Shaft. Oh, yes. Yes. The original. And uh, we'll talk about Shaft. Speaking of uh, music and the music world, the two biggest singles worldwide were by, we've talked about the Beatles in each of the last uh, couple of episodes when talking about pop culture and some of the touchstones of the year, 1971, still the Beatles, former Beatles, uh, George Harrison with My Sweet Lord and John Lennon with Imagine were two the two biggest selling singles worldwide. Rod Stewart's Maggie Mae was third. What are your thoughts about music in 1971, Bill? Well, there were there were some amazing albums also released that year. Marvin Gaye's "What's Going On" was released that year. The Who Who did "Who's Next." Uh, the Stones did "Sticky Fingers." 
the biggest album of the year that year, in my opinion, was probably Carol King's Tapestry. Anybody that was my, everybody that's around my age owned a, at least one copy of Tapestry. And the other big album that came out that year was Led Zeppelin IV, which a lot of us at the time called Man with the Sticks, which a lot of people say is the greatest rock and roll album ever made. A classic American song as well came out that year, one of my favorites, Don McLean, American Pie. So yeah, that was a big year. Let's move to sports, shall we? The fight of the century, or so it was called at the time, Joe Frazier defeats Muhammad Ali in a 15-round unanimous decision at Madison Square Garden. Battle of undefeated champions. You know, everybody knows, I assume everybody knows the story of Ali. Uh, it had his title taken away from him because he deferred, the, to, he refused to go into the draft. Couldn't fight for three years. Came back, fought some, some tomato cans, getting ready for Joe Frazier. Frazier had taken the title in his absence. Uh, they were both undefeated, went into Madison Square Garden. Fight was fairly close until Frazier knocked him down in the 15th round. The Baltimore Colts defeated the Dallas Cowboys in Super Bowl V. You know what makes that a that Super Bowl a milestone? Uh, I do not. It's the only time a player on the losing team was picked as the Super Bowl MVP. Chuck Halley, linebacker, Dallas Cowboys. Trivia time here. The Milwaukee Bucks swept the Baltimore Bullets to win the NBA championship. And talk about some great players on these teams. Of course, Milwaukee, uh, Cincinnati guy, Oscar Robertson, uh, but also uh, one Lou Alcindor who later changed his name to Muhammad Ali, I think. I, I'm not even going there. Okay. Oscar Robertson, though, that was his first year with the Bucks, and he had come over from the Cincinnati Royals. That's right. On the Baltimore Bolts as well, uh, Wes Unseld, Earl the Pearl Monroe, pretty good team, but they're swept by the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, the Montreal Canadiens won the Stanley Cup. Jack Nich Nicholas was the leading money winner on the PGA Tour, but Lee Trevino won two of his six career major championships. He won the U.S. Open and... Uh, what we call the British Open over here, but it's called the Open Championships on the other side of the pond. And Satchel Paige became the first Negro Leagues player to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. And, and that was Jack Nicholas, not Jack Nicholson, right? It was. Jack, Jack Nicholson was doing some fun things that year as well, but it had nothing to do with golf. Uh, that was the year that 1971, the voting age was lowered from 21 to 18. Walt Disney World opened in Orlando, Florida. Charles Manson and three of his uh, female family members are found guilty of the 1969 Tate LaBianca murders, and the jury recommends the death penalty. How much do you remember about, because uh, again, you were youngish at that time, how much do you remember about the Manson murders and uh, and that story back then? Uh, very little. Around the same time, a little earlier than this, actually, no, what I'm thinking would have been in like 68, 69, there was a, a, a concern in Cincinnati. It was a Cincinnati Strangler. And that was that is etched into my mind much more, and I was younger than this did at, at this time. This was so far away, and and you know, I, I I honestly don't remember anything about this till hearing you know till reading about it and learning about it later as I got older. Uh, two things: number one, most of our listeners are probably going to remember the Scranton Strangler more. If you don't know what that is, go look it up. And um, with respect to the Manson family. If you're not familiar with that, I've had a lot of people tell me this, this recent movie, the Quentin Tarantino movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, my number one movie of uh, 2019. If you're, and I've heard from some people who've watched that movie and really didn't quite get it because they didn't understand the story behind it, which the, you have to have a little mm -hmm. bit of background knowledge of the Manson murders and the, and the family before uh, you can really fully appreciate that film. So uh, if you're not familiar with it, go read, read about that. Uh, 1971, Rolls Royce went bankrupt. 
They recovered. They did recover, yes. The NASDAQ Composite Stock Index debuted that year. My favorite story from 1971, during a severe storm over Washington State, a man calling himself D.B. Cooper parachutes from the Northwest Orient Airlines plane he had hijacked. He had $200,000 in ransom money with him on the plane, and he's never seen again. D.B. Cooper, that's one of my favorite stories for some reason. It, it, it is an interesting story. Todd Snyder wrote a really good song about it, too. Are you going to sing it for us? No. The first I ever heard about D.B. Cooper was uh, in the mid-90s. I'd never heard the story, and I was watching my favorite uh, sitcom at the time, which was News Radio, and uh, and Andy Dick was the uh, actor on that uh, show that kept talking about Doobie Keebler, and they were like, no, no, D.B. Cooper. He said, no, Doobie Keebler. Another guy that I was fascinated uh, by a few years later Evil Knievel set a world record by jumping 19 cars in California. I bet you were a big Evil Knievel fan, Bill. I was kind of enthralled with the idea of, of you know, defying gravity on a motorcycle. Born in 1971, Elon Musk, Kid Rock, Mark Wahlberg, or as, as Bill calls him, Marky Mark of the Funky Bunch. No, no. Tupac Shakur, Snoop Dogg, Mary J. Blige, Penny Hardaway, Jeff Gordon, Pete Sampras, a lot, of, a lot of big names. Amy Poehler, Lance Armstrong, Winona Ryder and Sean Astin of TV's Stranger Things, John Hamm, Johnny Knoxville, Ewan McGregor, Sofia Coppola, Corey Feldman, Corey Haim, and Adele Dazeem. If you don't know who that is, look that up as well. Um, there were some others that uh, passed away that year. You want to tell us who those were? Uh, Louis Armstrong, uh, oh. Jim Morrison, another one of the long list of rock people that die at the age of 27. Uh, golfer Bobby Jones, former presidential candidate, candidate Thomas Dewey. Not just a candidate. He won the election, right? Didn't he beat? No. He beat Truman. I, I remember it. I got the. Uh, it was in the papers. I believe it was in the paper. And uh, one of my favorites, Dwayne Allman. Baseball players who were born that year, Yvonne Pudge Rodriguez, Pedro Martinez, Brian Giles, Jason Giambi, Jorge Posada, and, and for a Reds flavor, Rich Aurelia, who was a Red for a short time, Willie Green, probably the greatest third baseman in Reds history, and everyone's favorite pitcher from uh, the early 2000s, Elmer Descends, an underrated Reds pitcher. Let's talk about uh, the 1971 Reds. We're going year by year and day by day, and we want to talk about what actually happened on the field, but a big part of what happened with the Big Red Machine and building the machine was Bob Housem and uh, we, so we need to really take a moment before we really get into what happened in 71 to really unpack who Bob Housem was, how he got to Cincinnati, and what his thoughts and plans were. You know, When he was introduced as Cincinnati's new general manager on January 21st of 1967, at that time the Reds were coming off a seventh-place finish. The franchise was kind of in a, a state of flux. Um, a, a group of local business leaders had purchased the club uh, about a year earlier, and they went looking for uh, what they called an experienced baseball man to run the show. And, and they got Housem, who had spent the last two years as the general manager of the uh, St. Louis Cardinals. He was hired. He was given total authority over baseball matters and sort of set about drawing up plans for the Big Red Machine. But, Bill, what can you tell us about Bob Housem, who he was, where he came from? And let's just talk a little bit about the, about the man and how he got to Cincinnati. Well, you really can't, you can't understand the decisions he made as the head of, of, of the Reds without understanding where he came from. He was born in 1918. He was raised on his family's honeybee farm in, in rural Colorado. Now, that doesn't have a whole lot to do with how he handled the team. Except other than he made, him a re- he made him a really sweet team to watch. <laughs> they did. And, and you and I both were raised on our family's honeybee farms as well in rural Colorado. So it, it's a place in our own heart, right? 
It is. But he had been involved in minor league baseball and sports since 1947 in Denver. He started with, uh, with, uh, with a team in the Western Class A League, and later they moved up into AAA, the Indian American Association, which was one of the, the big uh, AAA uh, leagues at the time before they contracted a few years ago. And the one thing he could always do was his teams drew. The first three years of the franchise, they drew 436,000, 380,000, 422,000. Each year, they outdrew at least one Major League Baseball team. That's pretty amazing when you think about it at the time. Well, in fact, in his first year, I think they led all minor league teams in attendance, despite the fact that they finished in last place. That's crazy. Yeah, for, and, and they were a Class A team, so they probably weren't playing in a very big stadium either. Right, right, right. So uh, that was the Class A Denver Bears. Now, but now the ball—he did build the first modern ballpark in Denver. It later would become Mile High Stadium. But when he bought, built it, it was uh, it was his baby. It was called Bear Stadium. And uh, and I like the story before we get into what he did after that about how he got this park built because the efficiency of it just blows my mind. He bought the old Denver City Dump for thirty-two thousand dollars and built a nineteen thousand seat stadium for four hundred thousand dollars. In just 110 days, and and that 110 days includes the time needed for the grass to grow. It just it's amazing to me how he was able to do that. And uh, this guy's a, a visionary, I guess. You know, it wasn't a very big stadium; only 19,000. I mean, he had to be packing the heights almost every night. So he, you know, he goes on and he's uh, starts to get a little bit of acclaim, I think, doesn't he, uh, nationwide for how well he's doing in the minor leagues. Yeah, he was a minor. Back then, for those that don't know, uh, sporting news was the Bible of baseball for, for many, 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 many years. And their awards were, were considered the top awards in baseball for a long time. And uh, in 51 and in 56, he won the, the Sporting News Minor League uh, Executive of the Year Award. And then in 53, the Bears contract, they'd, they'd been a, con, a minor league team for the Boston Braves for a period of time. And their contract expired, and they signed a contract with the Pittsburgh Pirates. And this would bring Bob Housen for the first time into connection with Branch Rickey. And that would have a profound effect on, on how he handled baseball from there forward. Yeah, this moment in 1953, when he, he kind of connects with Rickey, is, it's hard to believe it, but it, it has ramifications two decades later in Cincinnati, big time. Absolutely. Ricky had... He had a, a few theories that he believed in. He believed in for pitchers that a big man was always better than a small man, except uh, for Fred Norman. Right, and you know Johnny Cueto would also like to have a word about that. Yeah, yeah. hitters power first, and he felt that over if a hitter overstrides, you can't fix that. He believed it's better to trade a player too early than a year too late. And he believed in stocking your farm system with as many bodies as possible. He was a big believer in in getting your quality from your quantity. And the other thing he believed in was speed. He said it helps your team on offense and defense, and you can't teach speed. And all of these things would come into play when he gets to Cincinnati. And it was kind of a circuitous route. Uh, you're absolutely right about that, first of all. Every one of those, you can see how it manifests. And we're going to talk about some of them a little bit later, both today and in future podcasts, how those maxims that were taught from by Branch Rickey affected the way Housem uh, made this team. Now, his route to Cincinnati was kind of a circuitous route. Uh, in the late 50s, he tried to start a third major league, uh, the Continental League. Didn't happen. He really wanted to bring big league baseball to Denver. In 61, though, his team, his uh, family, their business, were the first owners of the Denver Broncos of the AFL, and this turned out to be a disaster. 
because they were kind of capital light. So he ultimately, after one year, had to sell the team and the stadium. And he went into business selling mutual funds. And it looked like his career in pro sports was over. And once again, Branch Rickey to the rescue, right? Yep. In 64, Rickey, who, who at this time was uh, with St. Louis, he'd become an advisor to Augie Bush in St. Louis. And, and he was talking house him up as the, as the uh, Cardinals were looking for a new GM. And in August, they, they hired Housem, and at that time, they were mired in, in, in fifth place. Well, they ended up winning 30 of their next 44 to win the National League, and then they won the World Series from the Yankees. And if you read different places, some places say Housem refused to take any credit. Other places say he took more credit than he deserved. You can believe what you want to believe on that. I believe in Bob Housem always. But it's hard to believe that he could come in in the middle of the season and, and have an effect that makes them win 30 of their last 44. Bill, it's got to be Bob Housen. What else could it be? I don't know. It could be the players. <laughs> it could be the players. Oh, yeah, maybe. The players are already there before he arrived. But still. I that, think they probably were. Yeah. Unless he changed out the whole roster. Success follows him everywhere he goes, I guess, is one way to put it, except for uh, the Denver Broncos, supposedly. So, But he became frustrated there, I think, in, in St. Louis, didn't he? Because he didn't have really control or total control over the baseball operations. He felt like to be successful, he really had to control everything, I think. And uh, and he got that in a couple of years later, didn't he? Yeah, the, the Reds were looking around for, for a GM in, in early 67. And the, the new president of the Reds, an owner who was also the publisher of the Enquirer, asked permission to talk to Housem. And uh, in January of 67, he's announced as the Reds' new GM and given a three-year deal. And they gave him completely complete freedom to run the baseball operation the way he wanted to run it. At the time, he said he was happy with his good young talent on the team, and he didn't have any plans to replace his manager, the young Dave Bristol. And he wanted to build the uh, the number one organization in baseball. And the other thing, that, and, and you'll hear about these names as we move along, he brought two of his top guys from St. Louis. He brought Dick Wagner, who'd handle the, ba- the business side and who would ultimately replace Housen years later. And he brought... Sheldon Chief Bender, who'd be his player, uh, director of player personnel. And I think both of his guys, especially Chief Bender, would end up having an, uh, an immense influence on what happened with the Big Red Machine. The year before Housem arrived in Cincinnati, the Reds had selected 27 players in the amateur draft. Uh, in his first year, that total jumped to 72, and, and a bunch of names that you would uh, that you'd recognize, but immediately you can see let's get as many people as we can and we're going to get some some players too because it was a different era where you just you could i guess select as many as you wanted you know go as long as you want so but when it comes to scouting bill can you give us a sort of an outline of of how Housem changed things and and what the scouting department looked like under his uh administration yeah when he came in in 67 they had 24 full-time scouts and, and within three years 15 of those guys would be gone he increased the staff to 36 and he brought in 27 total new people and he hired 300 part-time what they call bird dog scouts who would identify they, – they hear about a prospect locally, maybe go take a look at them, and, and just kind of report them to the regular scouts. In fact, my grandpa was a bird dog scout for the Mets because um, my great uncle was the head scout for the Mets in the late 60s. What it really did, you know, it, it kind of got – it got you into any major league ballpark for free if you had a bird dog scout card. Uh, I think that's why my grandpa did it. These bird dog scouts would would make their recommendations to the to the regular full time st- staff who would then go out and look at them. At the time, the Reds the process they were only looking at junior and seniors in high school. 
They did not. The Reds didn't. Housen did not believe in scouting college players because he didn't think the college programs met the Reds' standards, and he thought they'd have the college player would take at least two years to get to the big leagues, and they'd take, spend those two years unteaching them what they'd taught been taught in college. So they just didn't feel college players were worth their their time, and, and that high school players were the best way to go. <laughs> How times have changed, right? Yeah. So I also like that the, they basically took he, he he tried to get creative with covering as much of America as possible. So as the weather changed, they'd move Housen would move scouts around Housen and Bender, wouldn't they? Yeah, they when the weather got cold, they all went south and west. And uh, the Reds came up with a system where every top prospect, at least six different scouts saw. Them. If they if they the Reds like guys that were that showed signs of being able to hit with power to the opposite field. They like them to have balance and body control in the field, and they wanted them to have speed. One of the drills they really liked was to hit slow choppers at guys so that they'd have to charge the ball and field it with two hands and throw on the run. It showed their balance. The guy was short on speed. They'd look at him at catcher or first base or maybe third base, but this cost them on, on some local Cincinnati area guys. Uh, Mike Schmidt, who was playing shortstop in high school, and Buddy Bell, who was a local Cincinnati guy. Mike Schmidt was from Dayton. They couldn't pass the team's speed test. The Reds also didn't want to take on a prospect that they didn't think was was a Reds kind of player. And that was something you'll hear a lot about Housen talking about over the years. He talks about being a Reds type of player. Or, or you know, they, they could also call them troublemakers. But I think it was more they weren't Reds type of players, high character guys. And Housen didn't want anything to do with them. And this had them, because of this, they missed out on a, a guy named Dave Parker, who ended up being a pretty good player. Now, one note that you had made that I thought was really interesting, especially when you consider it in light of the current Reds uh, organization, where they kind of refused to push anybody in the system along very quickly. The note that you had was that nearly all the players drafted in the in the Housem era who made a major contribution to the Big Red Machine, they all arrived early, um, at least by age 24. But Don Golett was 19, Manny Sarmiento, 20, Dave Concepcion, Ross Grimsley, uh, Wayne Simpson, Dan Dreesen were 21, Will McEnany. 22, uh, Ken Griffey, 23, Raleigh Eastwick, Pat Zachary, Doug Flynn, 24. So, um, you know, these guys got to the, the big leagues pretty quick, most of these guys, and that doesn't even count guys like, you know, Bench and, and, and Rose and Perez before them who had come along uh, at a young age as well. So I thought that's pretty interesting the way they tried to push players along a little bit. Yeah, and, they, you know, they say guys that made a substantial, you know, impact on the team later. And, and I still think that's true today. The guys that have... For the most part, I mean, they're always guys that, that don't fall into the, the, the definition. But even today, if a guy's going to be a big-time star, star for a team, he's in the big leagues before he's 24. Before he's 24, right. But uh, maybe uh, in many cases, uh, a year to a year and a half later than he would have been in 1970, just because they're trying to manipulate uh, service time. And that's a different issue for a different podcast. Some other changes that were instituted by Bob Housen during that time, he immediately started investing money in renovations and improvements to Crosley Field, even though it was uh, slated for destruction in the next little bit, as we talked about in episode two of this series. And and that goes back to, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier, he could always draw fans to the park, and he really tried to make the park a more enticing place to come watch a game. Um, he built a network of regional ticket offices in, all around what uh, is now called Reds Country. He kind of uh, you know, emphasized that Reds Country concept, expanded the Reds radio network by a factor of four, launched the preseason caravan. And, and a number I thought was interesting was that when Housem arrived, the Reds had 900 season ticket holders. And uh, just a few short years later, that number was more than 15,000. Now, some of that's success, but 
uh, a lot of that success, but still, you could tell the the whole business transformed in just a few short years after Housem arrived, and it was it's kind of uh, not anywhere close to business as usual. It's a complete change of everything about the way this organization did things. It, is that fair to say? Absolutely. And the other thing, and I don't think you can overemphasize this, the Rams went from being a Cincinnati team to being a regional team, and that was all Bob Housem. The, the the regional ticket offices. The, the preseason caravan expanding the radio network that all made them a regional draw. It allowed people to come, and that's why you'll see you'll see later the attendance on the weekend games was so much higher because people would come in for the weekend. They'd come in and catch a game or two, you know, from Dayton or Indy or you know somewhere in rural Indiana or Kentucky or West Virginia or Virginia. You can't overemphasize how much how important it was that this became a regional draw. It's it's absolutely true, and you know, uh, growing up, I lived just across the Kentucky border over into Virginia, and it's you know it's a, a three and a half hour drive or so, um, four hours maybe depending on um, traffic. But it's you know it's it's a trip. It's not uh, it's not I can drive down for the game like you were talking about last episode and just pe- catch a game in the evening. And so that's what we would do growing up. We would uh, we felt like we were part of Reds country because the radio stations all over the place carried the Reds. And, uh, you know, we come in for the weekend and, and watch a few games and go back. And the stories are still legendary about that during the 70s when, when Pete Rose came down and spoke at a, a like a, a high school baseball banquet, you know, to raise money for a banquet. I mean, they're, and, and the caravan coming around. I mean, it really was a real effort. Understanding that the Cincinnati, the greater Cincinnati area, really didn't have the population base that, you know, New York, for example, or L.A. would have or Chicago and so you had to expand, and it was an enormous success because, you know, radio stations from West Virginia, Tennessee, Virginia, Kentucky, Indiana, all over the place were eager to become part of this. And, it, you know, having a great team helped to, to foster that. And we don't really see that as much anymore. Maybe that's been a part of the problem with the Reds' ability to draw in recent years. Maybe also one of the problems is they have uh, been pretty consistently bad. But uh, yeah. But back then it was it was a it was something everybody wanted wanted to be a part of and uh, and they really did a good job emphasizing that I think you're right. Yeah, the other thing and this just occurred to me, we're talking about the regional ticket offices. You have to remember this is long before computers, long before the advent of of you know being able to print out your own ticket and that kind of thing. And even then, I mean, go you know, the Reds didn't want you to have to go all the way downtown to get a ticket if you want to buy an advanced ticket for a Reds game. And I can remember there were pharmacy, I, you know, you could buy your tickets at different businesses in town. I can remember there was a pharmacy near my high school and you could go down there and buy your Reds tickets. And they were in this like lockbox on the wall. You know, you give them your money and they'd open this lockbox and they'd say, what's the date you want to go to? And they'd go to that date. They come out and they'd show you what tickets they had. <laughs> it's a different time. <laughs> but making it easier for people to uh, to plan to come to the game. And that's, uh, that's stuff that that's not just baseball operations. It's, it's fantastic. Before we get into '71, I, I want to make the I, I want to try to make a point. In my, I think there were four keys to the Big Red Machine's success, or, or to their ultimate success. The first was the hiring of Bob Housel. The second was the hiring of Sparky Anderson. So we're halfway to the four, and we'll cover the other two as we get to them. Oh, I'm excited! I can't wait to find out what they are. <laughs> So we're going to begin with uh, the end of the prior season and uh, basically the, the Reds losing the World Series. Johnny Bench was named the most valuable player. And then uh, not, not really an interesting uh, hiring here from the baseball perspective. 
But Al Michaels joined the Reds, 26 years old, lead announcer for the club's radio broadcasts. And and Michaels obviously would go on to do many, many great things, become one of the greatest announcers of all time. But, hey, he was 26 year old, years old here in Cincinnati. Yeah, and, and he's kind of his background is kind of interesting, and I didn't know this until I did some reading. From '68 to '70, he had he had done the radio for the Hawaiian Islanders, which, if you've read Ball Four, you know when they talk about when Bouton got sent to the minor leagues and they went to Hawaii, they said, you know, if you got sent to the Hawaiian Islanders and you got called up to the big leagues, you might decide not to go. <laughs> I refuse the call up to the big leagues. Yeah, absolutely. And so Michaels would have been doing their radio games during the Wall 4 era. The other thing that's interesting about Michaels is he selected contestants for the dating game in Hollywood. (laughs) Outstanding. That's pretty good. Uh, Now, he left uh, in 74 and was replaced by Franchester Brenneman. Oh, Marty Brenneman. Tom Brenneman? Not Tom, no. no. Oh, okay. No comment. Um, okay. And of course, Al Michaels, you know, do you believe in miracles? And just to me uh, is up there with anyone in the history of the broadcast game in terms of his, uh, he's just the smoothest, incredible announcer and still doing good work. Now, in terms of transactions before the season, there really weren't that many transactions after that 1970 season, which you see often with teams that make it to the World Series. You don't change too many things. But the Reds did uh, make a, a, a trade that wasn't necessarily a huge trade given what had happened the year before. But it was trading a big name in Reds history and a Reds Hall of Famer. Jim Maloney traded to the Angels for for Greg Garrett. The sad thing is, you know, he never really recovered from the from the Achilles. He wouldn't win another game in the big leagues. But he was absolutely the Reds' best picture of the '60s. But you know, this is a time where we're getting we're, we're getting younger. This is and trading Maloney is probably one of the reasons that this pitching staff got younger in 1971 than it was in 1970. And and the reason they didn't make very many changes, obviously. Uh, Bob Hausman was pretty confident. You have to be with a young team making it to the World Series already. It's not really surprising they didn't make many changes, to me anyway. No, they won over 100 games the year before, and they were, you know, one of the, I would I have to believe they were the youngest team in the National League. Bob Hausman said, we, you know, we, we were confident. We, we could go and thought we could go into next year without making any changes and still be better than we were. And the New York Times said that the Reds have the brightest future of any ball club in the majors, and there was no reason not to believe that was true. If we were, I, mean, I can just imagine us now. Uh, doing a podcast about a team like this. And uh, be, I, I would not be able to wait for opening day to get here with a young team like that. Now, now Housen did, it was reported later, almost make a what would have been at least a, 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 a headline deal. Can you tell us about that? They almost traded for Sudden Sam McDowell from the Indians, who was coming off a big year. And they were going to give up uh, Lee May and Tony Cloninger and a shortstop prospect whose name is Fred Duffy, or Frank Duffy, I'm sorry. He was their third-string third string shortstop at the time. But Cleveland wanted either Milt Wilcox or Ross, Ross Grimsley, two of the Reds' young lions in, you know, that they were expecting big things out of, out of in the pitching staff, instead of Cloninger. And thank goodness Housen passed on that deal. McDowell would never have a, an ERA plus above 100 after 1970. And hell, Lee May alone was worth more than he was. And and Lee May and, and Frank Duffy would both be instrumental in later trades for the Reds. Yeah, and you know, trading for Sam McDowell was not a, a crazy idea, frankly. You know, he was a six-time All-Star at, at that time. He he did make one more All-Star team. He made the All-Star team in '71, even though he didn't have a particularly great year. Top three in the Cy Young the year before, one twenty games, two point nine two ERA. And so Sam McDowell was a legit. You know, I don't think you would call him an ace, but he was a really top shelf starting pitcher and you're and was just uh 
28 as the during the 1771 season, so not exactly over the hill. Uh, and I think you're absolutely right that he was done by age 32, and it's a good thing the Reds did not trade for him. Um, and it's also a good thing because Lee May possibly might be included in another trade later that would uh, would help, as you as you noted, well Duffy as well. So well, plus May has plus May has a really huge year in '71. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, before the season started, even before spring training, a, a big time injury, and this is one that's kind of gone down in in Reds history in some ways. I know I heard about it growing up, even though this was before my time. Uh, Bobby Tolan playing basketball. Tell us about this charity, uh, this basketball team that the Reds had put together in the past. It wasn't unheard of. In fact, I, I think the Breds and the Bengals both did this for years. They both had charity basketball teams. And they would go around the, the area, the, the region. And again, it was reaching out to this regional concept that we've talked about. Helping people raise money. You know, they'd play high school faculties or, you know, whatever. And uh, in January of 71, in one of these charity games down in Frankfort, Kentucky, Bobby Tolan blows out his Achilles. And Sparky had gone to a game before the 70 season and as to nobody's surprise Pete got a little intense and got into a brawl with somebody on the other team surely not not Pete and Housen wanted to shut these this thing down but but he really couldn't do it officially and Rose argued that they you know that all these places had already sold tickets for that offseason so they kind of said okay well we'll go ahead and let you do it like one more year and then we'll look at it again well, here they go in 71, January, and Bobby Tolan, who's coming off a, a huge year and a young guy, and he blows out his Achilles. And he's only the, the, really their only true center fielder at the time. Hey, yeah, remember, if you remember last episode, we talked about Tolan. He was 24 in 1970 and hit 316, 384 on base, 16 homers, 80 uh, RBIs, 34 doubles, stole 57 bases. I mean, uh, a really exciting young player and kind of a centerpiece. And it put the Reds in a real bind when it came to center field. Uh, you know, the Reds were, weren't really sure what they were going to do, were they, about the center field? No, no they weren't. In fact, they, they it, it, I think at this point they thought they were going to get Tolan back probably sometime in June. He would end up, during his rehab, he'd blow it again, his Achilles again in May, and he'd be done for the year. And And – they tried Carbo out there. They tried McCray out there. They tried Pete out there. They even tried super stub Jimmy Stewart out there, but uh, there wasn't a substitute for Tolan. Nobody else had the speed to cover that big center field and and, and stop balls from skidding on the off AstroTurf and getting to the fence. And Tolan was really their only stolen base threat on the, on the base pass. Yeah, and again, this is, remember, the first full season at Riverfront Stadium, and it's really going to – uh, that's going to be a reason that, the, that Bob Hausman and the Reds make certain decisions going forward that we'll talk about in a moment. Now, one of the things that you, uh, in particular, wanted to talk about here, and I think it's a great idea because it's so different than the than the system that we have these days, but uh, the, the contract issues, and you've mentioned several times in each of these episodes, you mentioned uh, Jim Bouton's fantastic book, Ball Four, and a really good uh, discussion in that book about the contract situation in Major League Baseball for players. Can you tell us a little bit about how that worked and how it affected the Reds coming into this 1971 season? Well, you have to. The big thing is, if you're, if you're not an old guy like me, you know, you think about baseball now, and it was nothing like this. There was no free agency. Everybody was held to the reserve clause. And basically, all contracts were one-year deals. And, I mean, you could negotiate with the with the club, but you didn't have any leverage. 
you know, they'd send you a contract and, and you'd either sign it or send it back and hold out. And happened more often, you know, it happened a lot. So here's, here's give you an example. Here's Johnny Bench coming off of an MVP season, 23 years old, looks like the next, you know, great player. And he, and he was making $40,000 a year. So he, he asked for a three-year, $500,000 deal. And the Reds said, no, 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 no. We don't do – Housen did not believe in multi-year deals. Well, Bench ended up signing for 85000 coming off an MVP season. Which was a lot 85, more – 85000 Which was a lot more than 85000 today, but still. And, and if you held out at that time, the sentiment was generally against the player, right? Like he's not doing what it takes for oh, the team absolutely. to win. So the owners could just rake in as much as they wanted, and the players really – you're, you said they have no leverage. They really had no leverage whatsoever. No, you know, the the, the team had more access to the media, and, and it, people couldn't understand. You know, if you if you don't want to be a professional athlete, you're, you're still making you know ten, twenty times what the average Joe Plummer makes. You know, if you don't want to do that, you know, hell, I'll take your job. It, 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 there was no sympathy for a player that was holding out. And we still see a lot of that these days, but uh, but less less so than before because uh, back then you're right the team had uh, had all the had the the bully pulpit so to speak. Pete Rose got in a uh, a contract dispute as well that off season, didn't he? You have to believe that Pete liked it. It got his name in the paper, which Pete always liked. And Pete wasn't Pete. I think I always believe Pete thought he was worth what he was worth, and he was going to you know hold out until he gets it or close to it. Um, at this point, Pete was making 105 a year. He was the first singles, 100,000. And he'd always said he wanted to be the first singles hitter to make $100,000. And he was. Well, he wanted a two-year deal for 250. And again, Housen said, we don't do multi-year deals. And as will happen a number of times, this one got pretty bitter. Rose had led the league in hits, was third in doubles and runs, and won a gold glove. And the Reds came back and said, well, your average went down 32 points. You didn't even lead the team in hitting. Perez had snuck by him to lead the team in hitting on the last day of the season. And and Rose finally lowered his, his demand to 115000 and Haslam still wouldn't give in. He wouldn't give him the raise based on merit. He ended up saying, you know, they ended up giving him a cost of living raise based on about half of his salary. But ultimately, uh, th- that did get all worked out. The Reds get to spring training, and uh, we start to see, first of all, uh, we back to center field. The Reds tried to Hal McRae and Pete Rose out there, and even had Dave Concepcion taking fly balls out in center field. They were desperate, it seems like to me. Um, yeah, but, my guess is they were pulling people out of the stands and seeing if they could play center field. Yeah, really. You should you should have gone down there, see if you could get in. the The issue we've already t- talked about it with Bobby Tolan, but now during spring training, it starts to become clear as to why this team is going to end up maybe not achieving what they thought they should the injury bug and it really hit them hard or began to hit them hard in spring training. Yeah. Merritt and Simpson still weren't right. They hadn't recovered from their problems the year before. And, and Simpson really never would. Uh, and then in spring training, Lee May, Tony Perez and David Concepcion all got banged up. And so we're getting into the, you know, getting ready for opening day. And, you know, you got three of your starters banged up and, and three out of eight ain't good. It's not. It's not. So the season begins. Let's get to opening day now. The season finally begins on April the 5th, and it began just about like, it was kind of a microcosm of what was to come for the season. Cold day. First opening game at Riverfront Stadium 
that day Hamilton did start in center field and and Bill it did not go well did it no it was it was cold it was in the mid 40s uh, Lee Make didn't play so Perez started at first base Concepcion didn't play so Frank Duffy played shortstop the Reds they Reds played Woody Woodward at third base and made and they made six errors and Woodward Woodward would make three of them and the Braves scored three runs in the eighth and ninth off Granger, Gullet, and Carroll to beat the Reds seven to four. And it did not get did not get much better from that point. The Reds lost four of uh, f- lost their first four games. They lost eleven of the first fifteen games, and by the end of April, were eight and twelve, eight and a half back uh, behind the Giants. And at one point in April, the Reds went eight of nine games without scoring more than three runs. Again, this was the team that just came out of a World Series, and the, and the sky was the limit. So by the end of April, they'd been shut out twice. They had they don't were only shut out once in the entirety of 1970. So just a, a disastrous beginning, something that modern Reds fans know about, a disastrous beginning as we get through April and into May, and it doesn't get much better in May, does it? Now, just going back to opening day for a second, I, I'm looking at the box score. The starting catcher for the Braves that day was a guy named Hal King, who went two for four, had a double and a sacrifice hit. We'll hear more about Hal King in a, in a couple of years. We will indeed, yes. So on uh, May 6th, that's when Tolan, he, he, re, he re-injured his Achilles and he's done for the year. And in and, and the last podcast, Chad said that we would probably never hear the name Angel Bravo again in our podcast. <laughs> I did say that, yes. On May the 13th, the Reds traded this pinch hitter, Angel Bravo, to the Padres for Al Ferraro. And the only reason I tell this story is because it's a quote. After playing horrible defense and hitting 182 for the Reds, he, he Ferrara asked, what did you expect to get for Angel Bravo, Willie Mays? <laughs> it's an excellent question. That's, <laughs> That's good. Um, the Red now, okay, so it's all bad news to this point, but late May, we, we talk, we're going to talk a lot in next episode about a, a really a key trade that supercharged the Big Red Machine. And, and some that we talk about on our regular weekly podcast often are trades that are kind of underrated in Reds history, where they would kind of fleece the other team. Current day, we're talking about Luis Castillo or Eugenio Suarez. But May, late May, the Reds were able to consummate a deal that, to me, has got to be one of the biggest deals in franchise history in retrospect. That's not one that most people would point to when you say, what are the most underrated trades? That's my opinion. What do you think, Bill? I agree with you. You know, I said there were four things. Maybe there were four and a half or four and three quarters things that that made the Big Red Machine what they were. And this would be that half or three quarter thing. Uh, And maybe it's more than, and maybe that's not giving it enough credit. But the Reds traded Vern Geishart and the shortstop Frank Duffy to the Giants for a guy named George Foster. The Reds were struggling. We're still kind of beat up. Tolan was out for the year. Carbo was struggling. So they talk, They were talking to the Giants about an outfielder. And the Giants offered him Bernie Williams, who was a guy, a pretty good player. you know. They, you know. But the Giants kind of decided to, to pull him back, and they offered the Reds, how, or they offered Housem George Foster. So Housem calls the Reds super scout, Ray Shore, and asks him what he thought. And then Shore couldn't believe that they were offering him Foster. Foster was young and raw, but he was on their big league club, and he looked like he was going to be the Giants' starting left fielder of the future. 
So the Reds had to throw Geishart into the deal, and they got Foster. And it would take it would take a few years, but Foster would would end up being you know just an outstanding player on the Big Red Machine. In 11 seasons with the Reds, he did 286 with 244 home runs, 861 RBIs, 60, 680 runs scored, 1,276 hits, and 207 doubles. At the time, he was second on the Reds' all-time list in, in slugging percentage. Now he's uh, tied for fourth with Junior, and uh, Adam Dunn and, and Joey Votto have passed him. But that's a pretty impressive career with the Reds. Plus, he'd win, he'd win an MVP, come in second once, and we, and we all know about the, the legend of George Foster. Oh, absolutely. And at the time, you know, I, sometimes I like to look at this as if we were in the moment and, and how we would be analyzing it on, on a dumb podcast in 1971. And first of all, no one would know what a podcast was or how to download one or even what downloading was. But the trades made at the time, and, it, you know, it really didn't help the 1971 Reds that much. Uh, Foster was 22. He did, he got four, over 400 bats or plate appearances for the Reds that year, and did not hit particularly well. 234 average. He did hit 10 home runs, but uh, slugging percentage below 400, on base percentage below 300. Not a great season, but but you're right. That's one of the it's one of the key moments that at the, at the moment you and I would may not have known that this was uh, going to help the Reds going forward. But you have to believe that Bob Housem and, and certainly Ray Shore, whose name comes up again and again, the Reds uh, scout uh, who scouted a, a lot of these guys and gets a lot of the credit uh, all the way up through the 1990 team but they had to know oh wow this is this is going to uh, this is going to help the team at some point now did they know that Foster was going to become what George Foster became i can't say that uh, he was going to be an mvp but uh, wow it's it's like it's a, it's a complete steal and um uh, a turn of fortune for the reds but at the end of the may, end of may they're 20 and 29 fifth place and already 16 games behind San Francisco. It got better in June, though, right, Bill? No. <laughs> no? <laughs> I don't ever remember hearing about a team getting getting no hit twice in the same month. Um, I'm sure maybe it's happened, and I just don't remember it. But on June the 3rd, Kenny Holtzman of the Cubs no hit him one to nothing. And he scored the only run, an unearned run in the third. Nolan threw a great game. Uh, and got beat one to nothing. And then the 23rd, Rick Wise, and I remember, li- and I remember listening to this game. I was scoring this game at home. And Rick Wise no hits the Reds four to nothing at Riverfront, and he also hit two home runs. The only pitcher at that time, anyway, to ever hit two home runs while throwing a no hitter. I don't think anybody else has ever done it. He drove in three of the Phillies' four runs. Crazy, amazing, legendary performance by uh, Rick Wise. In between those two. They were no hit in the uh, the draft as well, certainly in the first round at least. The Reds chose the immortal Mike Miley from East Jefferson High School in New Orleans in the first round of the amateur draft. And Miley decided instead he wanted to play quarterback for Louisiana State University and was later drafted by the Angels. Did make it to the majors for a couple of seasons, but uh, tragically uh, was in an auto accident, never made an impact on the big league scene. So the Reds did get... Uh, d- Don Warner in the fifth round, Dave Revering in the seventh, and Dave Collins in the twenty-third. That's about that's about the only players that uh, had any kind of a minimal impact on the big league roster. And, and we'll hear about Revering later, quite yes. a bit. Yes, we will. <laughs> now the All Star Game. The Reds had four players in the All Star Game. Only two, uh, only one uh, in the starting lineup, and of course Sparky was the manager. 
The four Reds were Johnny Bench, Lee May, Pete Rose, and Clay Carroll. And uh, really, uh, the National League lost, but Johnny Bench, uh, he, he at least made his mark, two-run home run and a single. So Sparky, young Sparky. He, Sparky was still like 14 years old at that time, managing in the All-Star game. That's pretty impressive. Bench had hit a home run in the 69 All-Star game, I, if I remember right, in Washington, and almost hit a second one. And my and this is just me going off the of memory, but I'm I seem to remember at least early in his career, Bench was a really good All Star Game performer. You know why that's the case? Because Johnny Bench was a really good baseball player. Most of the guys in the All Star Game are pretty good baseball players. Most, that's true. I, I would have to agree with that assessment, Bill. As <laughs> always, your analysis is right on point. July, I have a unique grasp of the obvious. <laughs> exactly. July twenty seventh, the aforementioned Hal McRae. Five for five, including a homer and three doubles. It's four extra base hits at that time, tied a Reds team record. And then uh, Austin, August 13th, the Reds almost get their own uh, no-hitter. This time it was Donnie Guller, right? Yeah, seven and two-thirds, giving up. Then he gave up a bloop double to somebody named Cleo James. I don't know who Cleo James was. But he ended up giving up two unearned runs on an error by Concepcion, but Granger closed it out, and they won eight to two on a one-hitter. Now, as they move into August, the Reds are 18 games out, and they did make a little bit of a run, closing it to 12 and a half games out by going 19 and 10, but uh, it really never got much closer than that. They did get it under 10 games in late September, but never really, uh, were never in the race the whole season. And uh, so there's not a whole lot to talk about the rest of the way, but one thing that's kind of notable, that's something that uh, we mentioned in uh, the Big 50, and it's, a, it's not one of the biggest moments in history, but it's something that just terrifies me about what happened when they were playing uh, at, out in uh, Los Angeles on September 4th, Bill. You want to talk about that? They're playing in, in, in L.A., and Woody Woodward's – I don't know if he's playing second base or shortstop or if he's on the base. I can't remember. But somebody dropped a 10-pound pack, sack of flour out of an airplane, and it almost hits Woodward. It hit like 15 feet away, and the plane just flew away, and nobody ever found out who it was. I mean, can you imagine what that? What a strange, strange story. Nowadays, it'd, it'd be easier to uh, to find out who it was, I guess. But can you just imagine you're playing, you know, you're playing uh, baseball and you're, you're sitting and watching a game, and a, a sack of flour comes out of the sky? That's a perfect microcosm as well of this season. Just a disaster in most ways on the field, anyway. So, how do we how do we wrap up this season? Let's talk about some of the things that. Uh, we saw from the Reds, but then I want to talk about how Bob Halsam assessed uh, the Reds and what their needs were. Uh, so you, you mentioned Lee May earlier. I want to mention, I want to talk about him because you're right. It was his best season by wins above replacement, certainly. Uh, just an incredible season for Lee May, in which he hit uh, 278, 332 on base, 532 slugging, 39 homers, 98 runs batted in. Just an incredible season for Lee May and, and led the Reds team in wins above replacement, uh, according to baseballreference.com's metrics. But, you know, there were some other guys that hit that year as well. Bench did not have uh, a follow-up year like he had hoped, but it was okay. Tony Perez had a really good season after his outstanding 1970. He hit 269, 325 on base, 25 homers. Uh, you know, Pete Rose was, was good again, hit 304, second on the team in wins above replacement. But what happened was the the, the offense – struggled especially early bench and Perez struggled early and by the time they kind of got their legs under them they were so far behind they couldn't catch up in in the first 62 games the opponents threw 25 complete games against the reds at one stretch for nine games in a row they had three runs or less 
they were below league average in runs per game, and they were below league average in on-base percentage. It's the only time in the 70s that either one of those things happened. And it's a it's a perfect example of why uh, we make such a big deal about the grade eight. Uh, the pitching is not nearly as bad as throughout the decade as people want to say that it was. But uh, when the hitting wasn't the hitting, then this team, the big red machine, didn't run it. Uh, it needed oil or something, I think. Yeah, I mean, in '71, the pitching was actually pretty daggone good. They were third in the league in runs allowed, and 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 they had an ERA of 3.34, and a league average was 3.47. And while Merritt and Simpson didn't do anything, the other starters, Nolan Gullett, McLaughlin, and, and Ross Grimsley, they had an ERA of 312. Gullett, especially, uh, he was 16 and 6 with a 265 ERA. As a starter, his ERA was 2.56. And his first half ERA was 2.86, and his second half was 2.42. So Gullett kind of got it done at 20 years old. Yeah, not bad. Not bad for But nevertheless, you know, with all that stuff going on, they still finished fourth and 11 games out. So we began this show with Bob Housem, the Reds' general manager. Let's end it with uh, Bob Housem, the architect of the Big Red Machine, and his late-season assessment. Bill, you want to tell us about how he assessed what the Reds' problems were and how they could be fixed? Well, I think by, by you know, they get into August and they realize that they're not going to catch the Giants or the Dodgers, whoever's going to win the division, because they were locked in a pretty good pennant race. We were just kind of watching from the the wings. Um, and, and so they started, he talked to the, you know, the, you know, the coaches in the front office, other front office people and the scouts, and they tried to assess what this team needed to, to get back to where they wanted to be. And what they kind of determined was with these new stadiums that were popping up here, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, um, St. Louis, you know, but they're, they're, they're all going to be having artificial turf in the next few years. The, the, the players are going to need to be faster or more agile. And, and, and they thought these new stadiums would spark a different kind of offensive revolution. A, a couple of interesting numbers. In 1970, in the National League, home runs outnumbered stolen bases 1,683 to 1,045. And they had, it had been this way every year since 1928. By 1976, stolen bases outnumbered home runs for the first time in baseball history. The Reds made that switch in 72, which says a lot about how ahead of the curve Housem's thinking was. Yeah, it's a situation where we talk about Moneyball and finding uh, the inefficiencies in the market. That's a perfect example of how Housem identified something that was going to be really important with all these AstroTurf stadiums and with the way baseball was changing and really ahead of the game. I think that's a great point, Bill. And, and the Reds, Hausman and, and his people determined that the, this Reds team was just too slow for these stadiums. They wouldn't be able to take the extra base, you know, and you were going to get some balls that skidded past in the outfield, and, 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 and infield balls were going to get through faster. And they didn't think they had the offensive arms to prevent other teams from, from taking extra bases or the speed in the outfield to keep those balls from going to the wall. And defensively, the Reds also had to, you know, we talk about speed on the base paths, yeah, but defensively, the Reds had to really kind of look at that as well and make a determination: how do we get how does speed affect us, and how can we make sure that we're uh, we're able to protect our pitchers defensively using speed? And that's something Housem took into consideration, I think, right? Oh yeah, in the infield, I mean, he knew he was pretty good up the middle. You know, he had he had bench. That's a good place to build. He had Concepcion, who he thought was developing at the plate, and often already was pretty daggone good defensively. Tommy Helms. Uh, and he believed, and, and he thought Helms' quickness and his instincts would hold him fine at second base. 
He thought Concepcion would be like the he would be the prototype for the artificial turf shortstop because he's got a, a, a lot of range and a really really strong arm, and it turned out to be the case. And Concepcion would be the the uh, architect of the of the bounce throw to first base from the hole at shortstop. He'd be the first guy to do that. But their concerns was at the corners. They were slow at the corners with Perez and May, and, and Perez was just not a good third baseman. And the, he thought he had some players that, that might help, but they just weren't quite ready, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Griffey and, and Dreesen and Joel Youngblood and, and a guy named Gene Locklear were all in their minor leagues, but they, but they didn't think they were ready yet. And a couple of these guys would end up being important pieces to the ball club, and at least one of these guys would bring a, a pretty important piece to the team later on. So the front office does, does this overall comprehensive assessment evaluation of the team and the conclusions essentially are they, the team needs more overall speed. They need improved defense at third base. Uh, they need more speed and better arms in the outfield. And they wanted another left-handed bat for the lineup because they were concerned about Bobby Tolan, whether he'd return. Um, and if he didn't, they would only have Pete Rose and, and Bernie Carbo hitting left-handed. They also didn't believe that uh, Jim Merritt or Wayne Simpson would regain their effectiveness or weren't sure that they would, so they wanted to get more pitching. And so Housem began collecting data on every player on every team in both leagues. And in help, with the help of Ray Shore, the Super Scout, uh, Chief Bender, Sparky Anderson, and others, would, would rate players around, uh, around the league on uh, the things that were important to the Reds. And so he was also doing some other things at that time, which was, uh, was what, Bill? Well, the the other thing that was real interesting, uh, two things. One is we're talking about only having the one, you know, the one left, the two left-handed bats. The other thing is Carbo was coming off a really bad year. Uh, he he did not play well. And and the other thing was process that he went through where he was he was dealing with Ray Shore and Chief Bender. If you to really get a good understanding what this was, you have to really go to to uh, Big Red Dynasty and there's a section in there. On when they when he was doing this assessment at the end of the seventies and how he looked at every player on every team and it's really really worth it. We it's too long for us to go into here, but it's really worth reading about. And at the, exactly at the same time, Housen was working on trade possibilities, and one name dominated the Reds' trade list. Bill, it was a little guy out of Houston that they they just couldn't get enough talking about. His name is Joe Morgan. Thank you for listening to Building the Machine, a brand new podcast series from Red Leg Nation Radio. To get each episode of the show delivered to you automatically, subscribe to Red Leg Nation Radio. You can find us at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, essentially wherever you find podcasts, we're there. Many of the facts, figures, and anecdotes from today's episode came from BaseballReference.com and the books Red Leg Journal by Greg Rhodes and John Snyder, Big Red Dynasty by Greg Rhodes and John Arvarty, Ball Four by Jim Bouton, and The Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the Cincinnati Reds by Chris Garber. Until next time, for Bill Lack, this is Chad Dotson saying so long, everyone.